Hi, it's Matt from the Impod, and I just wanted to say it's good to be back after our winter sabbatical. Now we're all rested up and ready to go, so please, please do enjoy the first of our Creator Focus Month, which we like to do in January's, and this year it is Neil Gaiman. And first up is Sandman. So it's nice to see you all again, and please do enjoy your episode. Thank you. And welcome, everybody, to another episode of the End Podcast, where we talk about films and comics and TV programs. And we're back. We're back after a, a little break, a little Christmas break. We had our festivities, and you know, here we are, excited and full of pomp and vigor to address you. Our darling listener. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get into everything, before we get into the nuts and bolts of what's going in today, remember, guys, hit that follow and subscribe. This really means a lot to us. We love making these podcasts, but you know, it just it's it's a big reward when we get those get those little clicks. So remember, we're on YouTube as the end one shots. We are on all your favorite listening locations. If you found us on YouTube, then you can find us on one of your favorite listening locations uh, as the end. And you need to search as well for Spank Media because the end, as it turns out, is quite a popular thing to be written on podcast locations, which is something I definitely did not think about when I chose the name for the podcast. <laughs> but it gave me some catchy <laughs> clothes, so I'm happy with that. With me, as always, is my favourite friend from Utah. I think he's my co-host. It's Tim. How are you, Tim? <laughs> hey, Matt. How are you? I'm, I'm doing back. well. And thank you. And listener, <laughs> listener, just so you know, we record these podcasts on you know Saturdays and or Sundays. Today we're doing it on Sunday. Matt takes out middle of Sunday to speak to you. And those of us in North America get up at the, like, it's literally not even dawn yet here. That's how much we value. <laughs> like, you can look behind me. If you were on this Zoom right now, you can look behind me and see the pitch black of the night. We do this out of love. And it, please click for us. I'm doing great. I'm happy to be in 2024. Let's yeah. get past that 2023. Let's move forward and have a good year. Yep. Yep. I, yep. Onwards and indeed upwards. That's right. But we won't say what we're going up. Hopefully some ladies. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 or gentlemen. We're not funny like yes. that. Well, I mean, we, we don't mind people being funny like that. Not that they are being funny, but we're open. I'm not personally open. I'm just saying, if it's not a lady you want to be up, that's absolutely fine by us. That's right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Uh, we have one of our specialists of guests. We have from the not so extended Pod family these days. It's my friend and your friend. It's 
Joe Baguettes. Hi, Joe. How are you? Good. I love the smell of end pod in the morning. That's <laughs> right. <like> victory. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going, doing good, guys. Uh, always a pleasure to be here. So looking forward to digging into uh, Sandman because, uh, man, this thing has, is what, about 35 years old? Spun off mm -hmm. quite a few other series, and there's been a lot of content been dropping in recent histories. So, uh, some good content too, uh, adaptations yeah, and the likes. So, a lot of stuff to talk about, actually. How have you been, though, Joe, as a sexually active young man in Canada? Uh, same as always, man. I, I I'm pretty regular uh, in my routines, so uh, <laughs> not too high, not too low, just steady. You know, there you go. Just the steady flow of everything uh, you know like everyone a little bump in the road here and there but uh, mm. you know you hit a few bumps bring your car to the garage you get your shocks fixed that's the way it goes there you go you know? <laughs> or, or let it get to a, a position of complete <laughs> disrepair and then go buy a new one <laughs> <laughs> like my cousin that's what my cousin does <laughs> i think me, me and your cousin might get on you know <laughs> Cars are too expensive to just let them uh, fall uh, apart. Dude, when I picked yeah. my new car up yesterday, I felt like I was fucking driving like a crystal statue of Jesus. I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> and not the big Jesus, because he was quite a resolute fellow. We're talking about little baby Jesus. Do you know what I mean? No room at the end, little donkey, three wise men Jesus. That's that's what I was driving <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. I'm really glad to finally have a car that first of all goes in reverse and the driver's side window wiper work for more than 10 mm. strokes, which actually sound was similar to what we were talking about before we came on air. <laughs> <laughs> so you can only do uh, so right-handed, you can only go 10 strokes and you have to go back to the left? <laughs> well, I mean, I would say if I have stimulus, then do you know what I mean? You've got to find the right yeah. one, but then you don't want to lose the atmosphere. I've lit the candles, mm -hmm. the incense is burning, and um, yeah. yeah, I've got a mood going. So, you know, no. put a lot of work into it. I do, and that's why we were talking about me having carpal tunnel. It's probably too much work. <laughs> 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 yeah. Let's get on to the topic at hand. Is as Joe suggested, we are doing. First of all, we're doing Sandman today, but before we get into the nuts and bolts of that. It's January, so that means it is our esteemed and infamous Creator Month! And, well, the cat's out the back, isn't it, Joe? You've already told them what we're doing. So I was going to add this big intro. It was going to be amazing. But what better introduction is there than a nice gentleman from Canada telling us it's Neil Gaiman Month! Yes! <laughs> So previously, before we get onto this one, we've done Alan Moore and we've done Warren Ellis. And they both went down quite well. We thought that after about six months of the Warren Ellis one, I should never have made us do it because no one was listening to it. But it's good. These are evergreen videos. People still click on them. So that's cool. Yeah. I think this one's going to go well as well because Sandman's in the zeitgeist. Gaming seems to be. He's a jolly nice chap as well, isn't he? He's a very nice man. But it's more importantly, Tim, you're a very nice man, and you chose Gaiman. What is your relationship with Neil Gaiman, please? 
Gaiman is one of the first creators I actually consumed. So back in the 90s, when I originally started reading some comics, because my friends at uh, college are reading them, they would talk weekly, not weekly, it'd be like monthly, whatever it was. It's like whenever the actual new Sandman came out, they would get together and talk about it. And I had no idea. It was like, it was too far in the past for me to get into it. It was in the middle of the run. But I always had Sam on, on my mind that when the first trade came out, I got it immediately and I read it and I was like, this is real literature. And I do think it is largely. And so I always had Game on, on my brain, even in the mid 90s. And I would say like the 90s and the 2000s were sort of heyday of productivity. But even now he writes novels and he comes in and I think advises like there's a Sandman universe that DC put out uh, in the last several years. As a concept, as a universe, it is ongoing and has many, many issues at this point. So he's still sort of in the comics realm. He's a really, really good example of somebody who has an interesting pedigree. He's a literary writer, a real fantasticist, and has such a, a beautiful knack for the comic form. It's very unusual for someone who, who cuts their teeth in prose to be so good at comics. It's such an mm. unusual transition. Mm. And so I just think he's a very, very gifted guy. And I have a, a sort of like personal history with him. And I just think that his work is so beautiful. And there's so much to dig into with, in a creator month. I mean, you know, because he's done so much prose, we're going to consider some of his prose. We won't give it away, but we're going to do a little bit of that. And no, you, you know, can you give can, it you away. Can tackle. Oh, you okay. Can so we're going to do Coraline. It's going to be one of our uh, one of our weeks. But it's fun because you he's multimedia. So you can get into various different types of forms with him. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And just so many great memories of hanging out with my friends when I was a very young person and uh, talking about Neil Gaiman. So I'm very excited to talk to you guys about him. I think he's just tremendous. You've picked up on so many interesting points there, Tim. First of all, the way that you were introduced to Gaiman is in actual fact how Gaiman was introduced to comics. You said you used to read, you know, the superhero stuff when he was, young and then as people do he discovered women in punk music yeah and one day he went into a new shop newsstand whatever it was like maybe corner shop or whatever and he found oh yeah because he'd be in england wouldn't he so it'd be like corner shop a news agent is what we call it over here and okay. he saw alan moore swamp thing and he picked it up and went oh things have changed a bit haven't they this looks pretty fucking good it is just dumbfounding and exciting at the same time because you could never fucking imagine anything like this happening today. Neil Gaiman finds a, a P.O. box or whatever for Alan Moore and he's already, at this point, he is, um, he's a novelist, but he's taken up all kinds of bits and bobs. Like he actually wrote a Duran Duran biography. <laughs> no way. Yeah, fucking amazing, isn't it? I would love to get my hands on Neil Gaiman's Duran Duran biography. And he'd had That's a, crazy. he'd had a novel published and he thought, well, I don't know how to write comics. Like he literally did not how to know how to get his ideas. Do I get that onto the page? So he sent his published novel over to Alan Moore, contacted him and gave him a phone call, and he went, he goes, I've got a fucking bone to pick with you. I've just wasted two days reading that novel. <laughs> and I had, too, I had too much of a fucking stuff to do, but I couldn't put it down. <laughs> yeah. So he said, I'm going to be at this convention. 
come and meet me. So after the conventions, then he sits with Alan Moore and Alan Moore says to him, how can I help? And he goes, how do I write a comic? How do I get all these stories from my mind into a functioning story? How do I get those words and thoughts to an artist to actually produce it? And he says, no. well, what you do is you write them down. <laughs> <laughs> he said, so you'll start with, you'll basically start with two men that are sitting in a room talking about how to get into comics. One of them is, <laughs> one of the gentlemen is wondering if the other one will ever speak. <laughs> <laughs> so he gives him a brief and Neil Gaiman goes away and writes his first ever script. And do you know what the character of that script was based upon? Uh -huh. John Constantine. Oh, man. Which, of course, everybody yeah. thinks of as an Alan Moore creation in Swamp Thing. That's crazy. Isn't it? The first thing he ever wrote was, a was the character John Constantine, and then he gave it to wow. Alan Moore. That's, it's so sick, isn't it? <laughs> that and is then, sick. But to be that good immediately, I struggle a little bit to drop into the mindset of these classics. It was a little bit the same with Swamp Thing, wasn't it, when we did that? From Hell mm -hmm. was quite turgid. I know Joe specifically struggled with that. And you know, I don't like using the word literature in tandem with comics, because I think in the same way that Sandman isn't Dickens, in the same way that Dickens isn't Shakespeare, it has a literary quality, which is, I think, the best middle ground that you came up with, Tim. Mm -hmm. My point of view is, let's just say it's a fucking good comic. Let's not use something like literature as a qualitative word to either reward it or not when it's at the behest of, of a detractor. We're trying to pander to a detractor's terminology. <clears throat> doesn't matter. Yeah, but yeah. I think this era of comics, when you look at something, when you're looking at something, it is the most literary comics have ever been. Agreed. And the other thing about that is, you know, I don't know, you may know this, did Sandman start as a Vertigo comic? Is number one a Vertigo comic? It wasn't, and I don't have the numbers to hand, but it's actually quite surprising how deep into the runs it goes. I think it's about number 35 or something like that, and in the same way that Swamp Thing... There was a distinguishing thing, yeah. point where everything was sure. bracketed into the new publication. I would say that, you know, of the comic imprints, if we were going to impute a literary quality to a comic imprint, I would say Vertigo probably has to be the one. And I would yeah, say that yeah, Sandman yeah. at this point, I think among fans of Vertigo, has to be considered the backbone of Vertigo, you know, the definitive title in all of Vertigo. Yeah. And that's saying something. Because Vertigo has put out some of the, the greatest comic books of all time. There's so much to admire about the run, yeah. you know, including like how long it went, how the fact that yeah. he basically stayed on it the entire yeah. time, how he had art, several different artists work with him over long periods of time. I, I just think it's, it's one of the crowning achievements in all of. My first introduction was later on when I was in college, when I was in art school. Because I grew up in the country, so I didn't really have access to very many Vertigo books. So when I first got exposed, when I moved to the city, you have a lot more comic shops around and stuff. And uh, the one thing that was 
most striking about Sandman are the visuals. As a design, the character spoke to a lot of people because of his look, like the emo look, that dark hair, mm -hmm. pale skin, round the eyes, really spoke to a subculture at the time of the cure and like really reflected a lot of what music culture was going on. Alternative music and the Sandman character visually reflected a lot of that and spoke to a lot of people. Sandman, not only from the comics point of view, but from a cultural point of view, gained a lot of interest just visually. You know, substance over matter, right? A lot of people probably know Sandman, nothing about the character except for he looks like the fucking singer from The Cure. Fucking cool, right? You know, well, so Sandman is cool. Look at yeah. that t-shirt that I have with that on it. And I was reading this, yeah. I was going, that's the lady from my t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, aesthetically, from an aesthetic point of view, like Neil Gaiman was was on. I wasn't a big reader of Sandman at the time. I was aware of it. And uh, I really dug Dean's covers. Fantastic. Like no one was doing covers like this at the time. That was like groundbreaking. He would actually take make art pieces and take photographs to do the covers. Yeah. I'll use the word pretentious because a lot of people in art school are pretentious as fuck. And this spoke to them. Oh, it's deeper. There's a deeper meaning. Like you can mm -hmm. dig into it. You can interpret it in so many different ways. Yeah. So there's a lot of a lot of pretension to it, you know, that people uh, gravitated towards that. Uh, like, like Tim said, like he was in college, a lot of college students, you know, yeah, kind of dug yeah. into it and like, you know, with their finger in the air and like, oh, what do you think of this and that? And, you know, yeah, like, totally. Yeah. No, and, so and building on what you're saying, yeah, building on what you're saying, Joe, it's like, it, and if you, if when you're getting introduced to it, you see that all the cool people like, like this comic. This truly is like what's in the cultural zeitgeist for the sort of, the subcultures that you want to be a part of. And so it's sort of like you can gravitate toward that. And that's exactly what happened to me. My friends at school read it. And so I was like, well, these are my people. I got to read this too. And it, of course, it appealed to me immediately. So do you know how Sandman actually came to be? Called the modus operandi from Karen Berger, the uh, editor at Vertigo at the time. I'm going to say no, <laughs> just so like you can do your bit. Yeah. Oh, you greasy cunt. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. So please delight us. <laughs> I, I applaud you for doing your homework, mate. Not like the rest of the fucking rabble we usually have on. <laughs> uh, I mean, I always trust Tim because Tim is a very eloquent person. It don't bother me if he's read one page or no page or all pages. Like I know <laughs> Tim can contribute, whereas me, I'm research and editing. Whatever happens in the middle, I just get by on it with my natural charms. <laughs> I hope my notes are going to stand up, but all right. If you've got this story in your back pocket, Joe, I'm going to be very happy with you, mate. That's probably an invitation for um, deceit, isn't it? If there ever was one. <laughs> oh, dearie, dearie. So it was 88, wasn't it, that Sandman started? Are we correct, at least on that? Are we in agreement? Uh, 89, 88, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what happened was we had Dave Gibbons and Neil Gaiman were writing a story called Black Orchard. And it wasn't selling very well. So Cameron Burgess said, look, what we need to do, you're two newcomers to this whole 
shebang and nobody knows who you are. And to be honest with you, Jeanette Khan, the DC president says, look, we can't have female-led comics. Nobody wants to buy them. And she was being proved right at that point. So what Karen Burgess said was, Neil, we're going to give you an ongoing title for one of our existing characters. And we're going to let people know and introduce you by proxy of the character. And we're going to stick Dave Gibbon on Batman for a bit. And then people are going to go, oh, I like the way that guy draws. I like this character. So, And then we're going to get you back on this Black Orchard and it's going to go gangbusters. That was the plan. Mm -hmm. So... Neil Gaiman has a list of his preferential characters. No, he's already got an ongoing. No, that team's already got an ongoing. And this one's got an ongoing. And he went, oh, okay, well, leave it with me. And Cameron Berger turns around to him and says, do you remember when we had dinner a year ago and you were talking about that Joe Simon and Jack Kirby character from the 70s, Sandman? And you were talking about doing a complete revival in repurposing of that character why didn't you have a go at doing that and he went yeah right that sounds like a good idea to me <laughs> and alas sandman as we know it was born <laughs> it was kind of used as a almost an advertisement for neil gaiman's brand to get people to read black orchard it's the first I've even heard of Black Orchard. Had you heard of Black Orchard before, Tim? No, I hadn't, actually. Nobody had. That was well, kind I'd of the point of, of the story. It, <laughs> I'd, I'd heard it in very uh, briefly. I was aware of it, but no one ever talks about it, right? So no idea that that was the first book he worked on, and then it wasn't selling, so then. But mm. I'd heard of it before, yeah. It sounds pretty good from what I've heard. That original yeah, sort of fan volume sort of thing. Oh, is it really? One volume and it is 157 pages. Huh. Yeah. So basically one trade worth of uh, five issues, roughly. I know. And as well, it's a Jack Kirby character. Like, how many does he need? It was almost discouraging when I read that. I was like, Jack, <laughs> leave some for somebody else, will you? <laughs> right. But that's the character that he introduces into Sandman as well in one of the dream sequences, right? With the little kid dreaming of of the Sandman. Yep. And they do a really yeah. good representation of that in the television show, which we'll be talking about later. Yeah. And they actually have a new series by Riley Rossimo that's running right now called The Sandman oh, as well. Really? Yeah. That character as well, yeah. When Gaiman was having these powwows with the upper-ups of DC, he said there are two things that have to be the case if I am to write Sandman. And they said to him, what are they, Neil? And he said to them, Tim, do you know what he said? He said, I already have my ending and this story is going to end. And he said, well, that's not the way it works, Neil. Like Superman, you write it for a bit and then you stop and then somebody else comes in and writes it afterwards. Superheroes don't have an ending. Like they never end organically. It either keeps going or it gets canceled. We just yeah. don't do endings. It's not the way the industry works. So after a year, it was around sort of 90 to 100 in the first year and they were incrementally going up and up and up the charts a lot like sort of the walking dead started with kirkman and yeah. he started doing interviews 
And DC was starting to realize that they had a fucking hit on their hands. So in every single interview, they, he would say to them, yeah, yeah, I reckon it's going to be around the 75 issues and there's definitely going to be an ending. And they all laughed and sort of looked at me and goes, or I'll never write another fucking thing for DC. <laughs> <laughs> he's a, oh, it's great. He's quite a calm gentleman as well. He's quite a softly spoken gentleman. And, but he has this alluring charm about him as well, like how considerate he is. There's no bombast about the way he speaks, but he's very good at telling anecdotes. It's kind of like a soothing way. He has a lot of respect, not just from the reading audience, but his peers. I have a list here, Tim, if you'd like to hear them. If you'd like to hear them. I would. Of what people have given him credit for in their own writing and also in the wider, broad context of comedy. Grant Morrison said his work, particularly in terms of pushing the boundaries of conventional comic book narratives. Warren Ellis said the impact of expanding the scope of storytelling in comics and introducing mature themes. Brian K. Vormis said and he was influenced by Gaiman's ability to blend fantasy with human drama and explore intricate character developments. Mike Carey said Gaiman's nuanced characters and the exploration of mythology helped form his own way of writing. Alan Moore acknowledged the impact of Sandman on the expanding the possibilities of comic book storytelling. Mark Wade said Gaiman's storytelling techniques influenced his approach to character-driven narratives. J. Michael Strakinski said the influence on his approach of combining mythology with contemporary storytelling. Matt Fraction said Gaiman's ability to craft intricate narratives that resonate emotionally. Kelly Sue DeConnick was influenced by Gaiman's commitment to diverse storytelling and strong character development. Even Scott Snyder said Gaiman's influence on his approach to craft dark and intricate narratives with the superhero genre. That's just 10. The names on that list. And let's not forget what Gaiman was at that point. He was a guy that sent Alan Moore a letter. It's mad, isn't it? It's crazy. Yeah. Nowadays, if you get a phone call from a stranger, it's like a crypto scam. You know, like you, this could never happen again. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But I think there's more effort into actually sending a letter, though, isn't there? It shows intent by the actual act. It's not like me just spamming people trying to get interviews <laughs> on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. You know, what struck me the first time I read it, and I've only read it all the way through one time, was the theme of obligation and like duty. All of the different God characters have, Morpheus included, they take on their roles in a, with a sort of like grim dutiful attitude and for instance the, the bible for instance human being we're never content with paradise we want to aspire to be like the gods and then you look at a comic like this it's like well the gods are not having that great of a time like it's sort of like a grim duty that they are taking on and i just thought that was like such an interesting way of thinking about the role of eternity and the role of obligation and duty. Mm. And so that, that's one theme that when I first read it struck me immediately. And I thought it was just like tremendous. Oh, this is exactly Why what I'm laugh? talking about. I researched the fuck out of it and Tim just thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like laughing at me the whole time. Like, what am I, am no, I fucking it's, this up? <laughs> I'm just fucking loving it. The cost of genius and the isolation that that brings as well. 
the price of getting what you want is actually the price of getting what you once wanted. The expectation of something is greater than the duty or the honor or the responsibility of having something. There's this great three-way analog because Shakespeare's introduced into this on three occasions, isn't he? And really in interesting. I mean, one of the famous ones is when it was about the Midsummer's Night's Dream. And I think the whole run concludes with a Shakespearean homage as well. Shakespeare, Morpheus and Gaiman, they're all analogues of each other. Gaiman is the metaphysical analogue for uh, Morpheus, death. Then you have Morpheus, who is an analogue for actual storytelling. And there's this two-way sort of exchange between the way stories can influence realities. And you almost have Gaiman and death cohabiting. And indeed, Shakespeare, mm -hmm. what is our history other than the telling of past stories? The idea of free will, right? Yeah, Morpheus is so powerful, he can intervene at any time. And when Matthew, when he has often has conversations with people from his oh, realm, like, are you going to do anything? He's like, no, we'll let yeah. this play out as it plays. And then he shows up at the end and like with the consequence, right? And then he'll deal with it after, but he rarely intervenes. He's, as a character, he's almmost like uh, a voyeur. Like, like, a wa he, the yeah. like the watcher. Like the watcher, exactly. And funnily enough, in the audiobooks, it's the same actor that voices uh, the Watcher and uh, Eternity, right? And mm -hmm. in the, the audiobooks, it's the same same ones. So, and Eternity is kind of like the Watcher as well. He has the book. He knows what's going to come. He knows the mm -hmm. outcomes, the possibilities. So it's funny that uh, those things kind of overlap from the audiobooks in the in the book. But yeah. but all these gods, like some are more proactive, and some others are more about free wills. It's all that play. Like it's almost like a series of anthologies, really because it's dreams you can pull off all these different things and it's so easy to make them connect because in a dream the rules mm -hmm. don't apply like in the real world so mm -hmm. it opens up the floodgates on the possibilities of storytelling within yeah. this series right i liked when it as you would say joe when it got into the meat and potatoes of it midway through mm -hmm. and there was more long form to start with it was almost kind of a series of vignettes with some overlapping yeah themes and and characters and in actual fact it's probably why it transferred to television so well because of that episodic nature the reason why Gaiman did that when he was speaking to uh Jeanette Carr because back in those days every comic was solicited for 12 issues because they figured that if it went well they can carry it on and if it didn't then we've got 12 12 issues they thought if they cancel something after three or four, it reflects badly on the publisher, which we've seen a lot of, especially from 2015 to maybe well, 20. Marvel was blunderbuss, spraying out titles, cancelling them, and then they went back to more of the limited three or four series. Funnily enough, DC has readapted that method of publishing comics. Yeah. Like Swamp Thing is 12 issues, and if it goes yeah. well, Ron V will get more. And it's yeah. funny, yeah. they're going back to that format of publishing yeah well look at tom king most of tom king's best stuff his most notorious and prolific and his emphatic stuff was written for a 12 issue solicit issues when you look at yeah. um mm -hmm. deceased you look at omega uh, men mr miracle um sheriff heroes, in, Cro but, heroes yeah. in crisis Sher yeah strange, like... uh, strange what's his name there uh oh, yeah, oh adam yeah, strange yeah. the one yeah, adam, human, yeah, yeah. human target 
again, two trade paperbacks yep. long. And yeah. he said he was so sure that his interpretation of Sandman was going to get cancelled. He didn't even write 12 issues because he figured, what's the point? Oh, we'll get cancelled after eight. It's going to go that badly. And then if we make it past eight, we'll just fill it in with a few like one-off stories that he already had in his back pocket. So what he ended up doing, because it was because each each release had a few more and a few more and a few more, he just started yeah. mixing them in a little bit. <laughs> wow. But I think uh, if you look back at the early days, um, like Sam Keith was the first artist on this. Mm. And from what I remember reading is Neil Gaiman was pretty excited because Sam Keith is, a, a, especially back then, he was a pretty good reputation right and i think sam keith after what he did the first five or six issues he was like i can't do this because he was used to drawing superhero comics type stuff mm -hmm. right see all his wolverine covers over at marvel and he was used to drawing stuff like that so he's like i don't think i can do this because it's different you know like and there weren't that many in the mainstream these types of books Right. So and I think that's why you probably get uh, a rollover of uh, of artists, because it's a much different approach. It takes a lot more thinking for an artist to yeah. adapt from game and scripts. Right. It's all these made up worlds. It's not like buildings and two muscle mm -hmm. guys punching each other in the face. It's not like your mm -hmm. run of the mill conflict. It's not like a cookie cutter type approach. Right. Each Absolutely. issue can be so different from the next. One issue, you'll be drawing a, a woman being raped. And the next issue, you'll be drawing like a Disney type story. You can't expect an artist to be prolific in every style of uh, storytelling. And on top of that, like you said, Gaiman is a novelist. And I think early on, you can see where he's not used to comics and writing scripts and developing that relationship with an artist, like knowing how to describe it and leaving the artist's liberty right. to interpret. And I think that's maybe early on why it's maybe a little harder for people to read now because mm -hmm. now these type of stories are told on the regular and writers have developed a system or a way of working with an artist, right? Whereas a novelist, it's just you. You describe everything how you want, but this, you're handing it over to someone else to interpret your work. And maybe in the beginning, gaming was probably too uh, restrictive or too too controlling on what he wanted on the page and didn't give the artist as much freedom. I don't know. I'm not sure if that's the case, but I could, I could imagine how, you know, you get a page back and you're like, Oh, this is either they hit it out of the park or they did something even better than you did. We're expecting, or you got it back and you're like, this is nothing what I wanted for my story. Like, I don't know how, how easily it was to work with Gaiman in the beginning, but I could see how, you know, it would be tough for artists to kind of get into this, yeah. this mold, this new style of, uh, of comics, you know? Do we know what his scripts looked like? Like, do we have any idea of like what there's no actual script writing in these omnibuses? So I I do not know, but I'd imagine they were pretty. I mean, there's not too much to step away from, is there? There's not too much flexibility in the actual presentation of a script. Yeah, interesting point, Joe. Yeah, I I never thought about that. The, the actual like. Today, you think two. of like uh, Lemire and Sarantino or uh, Gerard and uh, King, you know, like you have these teams that yeah. have worked for, together for so long. It's almost like they're of one mind, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. You know, so uh, 
I don't think you had that relationship outside of superhero comics back then. So all these people have worked off the backs of more gaming and evolved the writing of comics, especially this form of comics, right? So obviously when you look back and read it now, people might be like, I, I see the, the genius. I just have a hard time enjoying it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's two of the things that he's credited with, with the development of modern comics. The emphasis on creative autonomy and the diversity of artistic styles, showcasing a, a flexibility in the medium that hadn't previously been engaged with. Probably his biggest influence was those first... Was it the first 12? No, it wasn't. It was the Dollhouse. So it's probably the second, the second 12 issues, which is the first trade paperback ever published. And oh, wow. it, yeah. And the reason why Rolling Stone had a comic of the week, or like what's hot in comic. And they were talking about Sandman. The publisher had the right to put an advertisement on the double page spread, but DC were like, well, what are we supposed to advertise? Like, we don't we don't advertise, but they had this space for it. They found out a week before it was published, the issue of Rolling Stone. And they said to Neil, they went, right, we need to put 10 of these or 12 of these issues together so we can try and sell them with a phone number. And so people can call it and get the Sandman graphic novel. Wow. And... And obviously it made the shelves of, of comic shops like the direct market and yeah, as they say, all else is history, but not seeing, well, I don't know if this is the artistic freedom of telling the story, but they said nobody actually bought it from the advert in the actual issue of Rolling Stone, but it completely changed the way that people consumed comics there afterwards. That's insane. I can't believe it was that late. I mean, that the the trade paperback is such a recent innovation. And it came yet another thing that this series innovated. Matt, did you did you research this by like kind of piecing it together or is there some kind of oral history? I, I would love to hear it like read an oral history of this comic book. Listen to the episode, Tim. That's all I can tell you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I did the work, so you don't have to. Yeah, no, it's tremendous. <laughs> Uh, I have a quick question on something you brought up earlier about the John Constantine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, does uh, Alan Moore acknowledge this uh, fact publicly that uh, Neil Gaiman wrote a short script about John and gave it to him and that's what he based the character on? Or is this just through Gaiman's story? Is it acknowledged by the creators? Because if you go on Wikipedia, Gaiman's name isn't mentioned once when in regard to John Constantine and who created him. We're in muddy ground, really. Let's put it this way. It's not in the way that Grant Morrison hates Mark Millar because he ghost wrote a lot of his promising works or rewrote them or rewrote conclusions and climaxes to some of his most notable works, but doesn't acknowledge it now. I think the difference with Gaiman and Alan Moore is they have such a friendship that I don't think it really matters. The only way that you have determinate and conclusive statement of truth is when it has the requisite of disruption. So 
there's no reason for Gaiman and Moore to ever publicly state it because they're both just happy with it, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was just asking out of my own personal curiosity, yeah, yeah, yeah. not uh, out of uh, giving people proper credit for anything. I was just, because yeah. I yeah. could care less, right? I love the character, and yeah, yeah, how yeah. it came to be is irrelevant to me because I love the character, which I'm and... happy is coming back in 2024. Hellblazer's coming back with uh, Spurrier and uh, Aaron Campbell, man. Oh, man, that's so good, because that was so yeah. excellent. That, that fucking series rocked. Yeah, it's <laughs> great. <laughs> That's one of those Sandman universe titles. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Did you read much of that at the time? I read a few things. Yeah, mainly the Hellblazer, but you have uh, the Dreaming, which was a very good series written by Spurrier as well. Uh, basically, they brought them all back. Really, recently, Tinian wrote a American Nightmare based on the, a story for the Corinthian uh, that came out mm. last year, the year before which Maria Lovett draws uh, one or two issues of that. It's ongoing. They keep releasing titles under the Sandman universe uh, umbrella. Yeah. The training's That's... pretty long, too. It's like many issues at this point. Yeah, it's got like three or four trades. You had Lucifer. They redid a Lucifer title yep. under the uh, Sandman universe, which is supposedly pretty good, I think, written by Dan Waters, if I'm not yep. mistaken, uh, which got pretty good uh, acclaim. Uh, you know, there's quite a few titles that came out of Gaiman, I think, did the issue zero himself. Very possibly, yeah. yeah and it was good. like an extra, like a double issue. It was, so that's worth checking out. Obviously, you can get online, but I'm, they're probably still copies. They probably printed a billion of them. Has anyone ever written Sandman after Gaiman? Because that was, as I talked about earlier, that was one of his uh, requisites for continuing. To my knowledge, no. He did yeah. a few other like uh, short series like Overture with uh, William the Third, William H something the Third. James Williams the Third. Yeah, I love that, that artist. I love oh him. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's a beautiful comic. Yeah, is Overture a prequel? Uh, uh, I had. I just never got around to reading it. I flipped through it because the art. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think I've read the whole thing, but it, it would make sense. It's called Overture, so. The way I heard Gaiman talk about Overture was that um, they wanted him to write more Sandman after it finished. And he said, well, it's finished, as previously discussed, Karen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they, he said, but they said, well, can't you do a prequel then? And he went, how do you write a prequel for something that's been alive for 10 billion years? And yeah. he said, well, what I do have in my back pocket is why he was so fatigued throughout this story and ipso facto how he was able to be captured so seemingly easy at the very beginning of the story Mm -hmm. and there is a reason for why he is so fatigued and weary and when they tried to sign him up do you know what they tried to do they tried to put him on a contract that was 17 years old. And he went, no, thank you. I'm not going to sign the same contract I did 17 years ago. We can't, we can't possibly put you on any more money, Neil, because then everybody will want it. And he went, okay, fair enough. I won't bother reading it. 12 months later, they said, hi, Neil. <laughs> How's it going? You are babes. Yeah. yeah, about that contract. Uh, yeah, we've decided to give you a bit more money if that's all right. And he said it wasn't about the money, it was about fairness. You know, he's a best-selling novelist at this point. 
and he yeah. said the the money the contract he received to write overture was a quarter of the residuals he gets from one of his lesser selling novels he said but it was about fairness and he was more than happy to do it under those circumstances was he in his 20s when this started in 
when the Audrey book was made, when the TV series was made, people were wondering how they would depict it. And I have to say, I wouldn't say I was disappointed, but I think it's notoriety betrayed my expectations because what I liked about it in the TV series, and we'll get into it in more detail when we talk about that, was it wasn't afraid at all. It wasn't afraid to really show the malintent, the atrocity, the ferocity of all the acts that were being um, portrayed. And I felt that it was a little bit unsure. Narratively, it knew what it wanted to do, but at the same time, it was a little bit timid about depicting it. From the precedent of Alan Moore, the guy doesn't fuck about, and what he says is on the page, Mm -hmm. no matter how off-putting or how ghoulish that topic might be, it is depicted in detail. I know you said, what did I like? But one of the things where I I wasn't completely invested immediately in, in those first 12 was, are we talking about dreams as in the manifestation when we sleep? Or are you talking about hopes and dreams? And I felt that it interchanged those two things too freely. It's like you say about good lettering or good colouring, Joe. By yeah. the time I, I completed this, I stopped noticing it and I felt like it was more specifically, it had a more specific relationship to what dreams are and the way that it was using it and how it interchanged. I like that you brought up the 24-7 because I think, uh, like we, we'd spoken, we'll get to it, uh, the other, the all the spin-off uh, series adaptations that come from this series, but that one specifically you know how i said i thought the show elevated the book you know it's better and i think that was kind of like neil gaiman got to do a bit of a redo with that episode right on the show where he tweaked little things that just made it better i love the issue where you get the introduction of death one of uh, morpheus's few relationships that he cherishes right is his is with his older sister death and I also love the aspect of the undying man where death grants him eternal life and every hundred years they meet up. And so tell me about the last hundred years of your life. And they meet in the brilliant, bar every hundred years. I love brilliant. that story. I love that story. And he's like, love so it, do, you wish, it, do you wish to die? No, mate, there's so much to live for, you know, even yeah. when he's, he's hasn't eaten in months it's, and he's like, no, bottom. I don't want to die. I love that storyline. I love yeah. it. And the one I find most overrated that gets so much acclaim is that fucking Shakespeare one. I was like, Mid- it's good, Midsummer. but I don't, I don't love I it. Like, yeah, I don't love it. And it's I, won awards and all kinds of stuff. And I I'm like, get it. It felt like a filler to me. One thing you mentioned is the uh, Loki, how you love that character. Oh, I and love guess that. what? If you listen to the audio, which I listen to the audiobooks, and let me tell you, I highly recommend anyone who's a fan of this, go listen to the fucking audiobooks because it's so well cast. The voice casting, oh, <laughs> perfection. I mean, so good. And guess who voices Loki? One of my favorites, man. David Tennant does Loki. No, and, oh, oh my so God. Good. He does it so good. Perfect, he does it so it? fucking That's good. It is, it's so fucking good. Oh, oh, what a guy. And uh, for volume four, this is what I've been doing. I've been putting on the audiobooks. And follow it through like a live action comic type thing. So yeah. I've been doing that with the audiobooks. I've been going through for volume four because I realized I didn't read it, which I thought I did. So I went back and did it that way because I wanted to try it. And it was so good when I heard David Tennant's voice for Loki. I was like, oh, and these audiobooks. Oh, I don't know. Do you, do you want me to go into it or? 
please, yeah. Uh, audiobooks. I mean, it's gotten a lot of praise, and justly so. These audiobooks are so well produced, so well produced. The voice acting is fucking phenomenal. Wow. At first, I heard James McAvoy was doing Morpheus, and at first, I was like, ooh, that seems kind of weird, but man, he fucking is spot on. He knocks it out of the park. Fantastic. James McAvoy's voicing Morpheus is spectacular. He does such a fucking good job. Uh, Death hmm. is Cat uh, Denning. Oh, oh really? cool. That works actually for me. Oh, uh, at first I had a hard time with it. But as now I'm on the second audiobook and I've grown into it. And I think she kind of changed a little bit. She's a little less Valley Girl. Yeah. You know? Like she oh, toned she it down a bit. Like that, did she? Uh... Yeah, she, in, in the first one, but I th- she toned it back a bit. But uh, first, when I first like the first audiobook, yeah. I didn't. I just listened to it at work while I was working. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was like, ah, yeah. I was like, ah. <laughs> but then in the second yeah. two, the second audiobook, <laughs> Death does talk like that though, because I'm listening to her to her speak, and she's just reading it word for word. Okay. So death does have that kind of youthful teenage yeah. kind of kind of linguistic rhythm to her speaking. Okay, mm-hmm. it makes sense. And and I only realize that after as I'm reading, as I'm listening through that fourth trade, which is really good. But man, it couldn't have been written like that because the Valley Girl thing is relatively new, isn't it? It wouldn't have been written like that in the 80s. That's a, the inflections are there. Because I think yeah, yeah. she just seemed like a bit of a like a bit of a scenester sort of thing, a little bit of a hipster type vibe, like yeah. a bit loosey-goosey. Yeah. I don't think because with the Valley Girl thing, it's there's an element of stupidity. I wouldn't like to think of death in that way. The issue that you that we spoke about a couple of days ago, Dream is saying to death how do you do this? She says, it's the best job in the world. I get to take people to a better place. Mm-hmm. But I grew into it. That was the one voice that took me a while to get used to. It's great because Neil Gaiman narrates the whole thing. All the narration parts are done by Neil Gaiman, who does a fantastic job as a narrator. So that's a bonus when I found out it was him. In the beginning, I thought it was that actor that's dead that played uh, uh, Professor Snipe on uh, Harry Potter's. Oh, Alan Rickman. I thought it was Alan Rickman at the beginning. And then I went and checked and I was like, oh, it's Neil Gaiman. So like, I was sure, I was sold it was Alan Rickman, but I I come to find out it was Neil Gaiman. Even knowing the story, and it almost follows the comic to a T, right? Like Mm. like I said, you can follow it through the trades as you're listening. Do you think it'd be worth doing that? I was thinking that it might be worth flipping through as you listen to it. That's what I did volume four and I've really enjoyed it. I don't think I'd do the (laughs) whole series that way because it's long, about 12 to 13 hours per act which covers three yeah. trades. So it takes 12 hours to cover three trades. Okay. Which you, you, what, can, you can probably read a lot faster, yeah. The issue where I realized, okay, I'm into this now, was for Said with the multicolored lady that's like all the different elements mm-hmm. and stuff. And she's... The metamorpho. Completely tragic story where... Oh, there's can't... so many tragic... Yeah. She can't bear being herself any longer and being cursed with these abilities. But mm-hmm. her powers are so emphatic that she can't even kill herself. She says she's thought about every single way, but her powers would just counteract absolutely everything. She'd be like a mutant that looks horrendous, wouldn't she? She'd be one of the um, 
Morlocks, like a high-powered yeah. Morlock kind of thing. She's basically a complete recluse, and she goes out with one of her friends, and she has to have this organic mask that falls off, and people see her like a zombie mummy type look, and she's absolutely mm. devastated. And she run straight home and then you see her for the first time and all her limbs and different parts of her body are different colours. Contradictorily sweet and tragic conclusion to the story. Where she finally oh, gets yeah. what she wants, it's still sad that someone should have ever been in that position. Even if it is just a character on a page, Joe. Okay, so I haven't read this through in a long time, but the ones that stick out in my head are definitely the first introduction of death. It's so good. Years hence, like, still sticks in my head as being so epic. Has your favorite changed from when you first read it in college to now? You know, I'm not sure about favorite issues, but my my sense of it has changed a lot. I mean, I think I respect how, and you guys may disagree, but I think that it maintains its quality throughout, start to finish. There are ebbs and flows, but I don't think it, like a lot of series that go this long will dip, right? Like their quality will wane a bit. In this one, what struck me is on reread, I don't remember thinking about this, but on reread, it seems like that the the quality is maintained. Like the, both I the, would even the writing, say the, it, it maybe escalates better because he comes yeah. in as not being a comic creator and he's kind of learning on the job, right? With, granted, Alan Moore is there giving him tips, mm. all these great people giving him tips but i think yeah. yeah he comes into his own as he's going right he gets into a rhythm and it just it's good yeah it just, once it picks you know, up it's like yeah. it's there and i think that on this read i actually like the early issues better than i did the first time i read them um mm-hmm. you know, i agree like when you think of it in a retrospect they, they, they're comparatively a little clunky probably for those reasons but i liked them a lot more on reread than i did the first time i read them so what do you think about the first issues in retrospect? Stronger towards the end. There is a subtle confidence that escalates from the early issues to this. But I like the way it just drops you in. Yeah. I, when I first read it, I was like, oh, crikey, this is where we're starting. Like from a point of weakness. And mm-hmm. it, this kind of feels like it would have been something that happens once it's all established, once you knew how powerful and, and the extent yeah. of the, the mythology, the mythos and Dream and his siblings. So it was a strange place to start it. But, but in hindsight, it's some of the stuff I remember quite fondly. More so having read past it, if you know what I mean, despite it qualitatively yeah. gets better. So it's a bit of a contradiction, yeah. but I hope. You know, take it on the whole. We've talked about this a lot of times in the past when we've done these. And I think that this comic book stands up to any of the Mount Rushmore classics that we've read for this show in the past. Like anything that Alan Moore has done, anything that Ellis has done, I think this stands at least on par with those. And one of the things we've said is that even though we love those books, we would not send a new person to them. Those are sort of like PhD level comic books. Whereas this, I would send someone to if they were new. It's so funny. I, I In would. my mind, Tim, I was expecting you to say that, but I wasn't expecting you to flip it. So in my mind, I was already prepared to go, 
Actually, Tim, I think you could send someone to this first time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would. Yeah. I think you can. Yeah, I think it's, you can. it's pitched at very different audiences. Anybody with any level of experience or anything could get a lot out of this. It's it's layered in that respect. So, I would send someone to this. I think it's the first classic. I would. I'd agree with everything you say, but I think I put it somewhere middle third of the Alan Moore stuff. I think there's probably, I can't think of exactly what they are off the top of my head, but instinctively I would say I, there's probably two or three of the things that I've written of Alan Moore's that would go at the top. Mm, okay. If that's all right with you, mate. No, we're not friends anymore. <laughs> well, I already took back our friendship, so you've just double and done it. You've just double negged it, and now we're best friends. <laughs> All right. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. I agree. I think a new reader can read this and appreciate it. I don't think it'll have the same maybe impact on them because of there's been so mm. much. It's 35 years ago, right? Yeah. And yep. so many comics have evolved from this and have perfected this form maybe going in knowing what it is and of its time i think yeah i think readers can appreciate it and yeah. they're like in the way it's laid out there's so many different stories right so yeah. so you're gonna find something to gravitate to out of all these stories and morpheus i mean the character himself is just even today is a striking character he doesn't mm -hmm. feel dated like the way he looks the way he speaks it seems ageless timeless mm -hmm. and i think that reflects him as a person as an avid reader as a kid so many little things influenced him and i think it, it shows in morpheus and i think yeah i think a new reader can pick it up and appreciate it and not have it feel too dated as some of the I, other stuff read from classics right one of the great parts of the hundred year friends with each mm -hmm. hundred years they had them in the in the garb of that era yeah. i yeah, yeah. love that and yeah that's great likewise with with Alan, yeah yeah with Alan Moore, the way that the attention of detail of how Swamp Thing looked, depending on the local arboriculture, those little attention to details are unnecessary, but noticeably astute. I'll just say this for new readers coming in. If you're a fan, because I love Kelly Jones. Kelly Jones' Batman as a kid, I thought was just fucking badass, right? And Kelly Jones draws quite, illustrates quite a few of these stories in Sandman, especially... The Moore's mythology one is all him, right? And I love his Sandman, the way he makes him look and stuff. So if you enjoy Kelly Jones, he he draws quite a few uh, arcs in this. So yeah. art-wise, Kelly Jones is fantastic in this. He's on point. All right. Well, being conscious of the time, um, we, still, we still have something to talk about. I think this is a simple question. As we always say on this podcast, you cannot 7 out of 10 read anything. You either read it or you don't. So would we, under that guy's recommend it, I will go first and I'll say, yes, I would definitely recommend it as soon as possible. Joey, would you recommend it? Uh, yes, if only to understand why everyone praises it. Exactamundo, dude. Timbo? Oh, my God. I would 12 out of 10 recommend it. <laughs> well, that seems contrary to the uh, mission statement, but let's go with that. <laughs> 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 exactly oh yeah absolutely anybody who is interested in comics especially independent comics um has to read this i think yeah definitely. Yeah, because it's true this type of book you could only find 
in the indie comic world and they kind yeah. of took an aspect of the indie comic world and brought it into the mainstream right and mm -hmm. to mass appeal so it's it's quite an, an accomplishment mm. so joe what we've been alluding to throughout the main body of this episode is the adaptation to netflix some month an 11 yes. episode series and I think we both thoroughly enjoyed it, didn't we? I love it. I think it's a fantastic adaptation. And I think you can see that Neil Gaiman was involved with it. Uh, mm. Just in the fact that we've mentioned it. We, we've been texting back and forth for the last couple of weeks about Sandman, this and that. And I remember you saying, oh, I'm having a hard time with this in the beginning. Like you thought I wasn't getting into it. And I was, so then you started, once you got far enough, you started watching the shows and like the first episode, mm -hmm. you're like, yeah, it's smashing, you know, like, and I was like, yeah, it's pretty fucking it's really good. good. And, and I find because this was so long ago, right? 35 years ago, the, the source yeah. material and it's 35 years. And now Neil Gaiman gets to revisit it and the tweaks they make just elevates the source material, right? just brings it to another level. A perfect example is the 24-7. That's probably the single best episode in that oh series is God. how they, they reinterpret Chilling. that. And the character as well. The character is much more sympathetic as opposed to in the book. The book, you're like, he's just a scummy, fucking selfish prick. But it's much more deep-rooted in the series. Mm. You have a feel of why is he in this mindset. And voice acting, I mean, when you cast something perfectly, right, it just brings it to another level where, wow, I imagine it this way. It's either on point or better than you could have ever imagined it. And that's what this series does, right? The word you used was elevate, and that's exactly what this does. I was hook, line, and sinker from episode one. It's a perfect adaptation. And not only that, it's perfect modern fantasy. The castings, even the ones that I was doubtful of, when I see Patton Oswald who plays Matthew, very close to my heart. <laughs> yeah. I always think, oh, it's just going to be Patton Oswald, and I'm going to noticeably, because mm -hmm. he has such a... But immediately I was, I was, I was like, worried as well. I, I was, was like, worried as well. He's sick. The way he's like, and the way he's got a potty mouth at times, but it's not all the time. The the expletives are used very astutely and just dropped in. Oh, I love it. <laughs> the only thing I'll say is I didn't quite finish it. I got to about a seven or eight, whichever one it was. And I think at the beginning, it's more episodic. And then towards the end of the series, it felt more a TV show than an adaptation. I can't put my finger on it, but it's in the way that when you watch a film, you know it looks like a film, but a TV show looks like a TV show. You just have a feeling about it. And I think it's because the reappearances maybe started to be fed in a little bit. But again, that's the same as the... I didn't feel like I was watching a moving comic page anymore. I would felt like I was watching a series. But you're going to have to do that at some point because you can't, even if this is just one series, and Neil Gaiman said when he, he was so fucking proud of it, when he went to the Netflix execs and they had the meeting, and I mean, let's not forget, this was number one in the world for a significant amount of time on Netflix. And he said, but he understands... He understands how it works. Like it's a very expensive show to make and they might not get a second season, but 
He said, yeah, I, I just absolutely fucking love what we've made. And I don't care if one person watches it. I know that we've made this. Obviously, the exec saw it differently. Mm-hmm. But contextually, he'd been fighting off 30 years of fucking terrible adaptations. Now, around the time of the Aviarad Spider-Man, so the, the Rami Spider-Man, well, Aviarad and John Peters were the producers at that stage. And it was around the failed Nick Cage Superman film as well. John Peters and Navi Arad tried to force a mechanical spider into Spider-Man 3. It was declined. He then took the idea of a mechanical spider to the Nicolas Cage Superman is the villain. Mm-hmm. And then he tried to force it into... Neil Gaiman had this script and John Peters phoned him up and he went... Because the way Neil Gaiman tells a story, he said, look... I'm a good person. I'm a nice person and I want to be nice <laughs> to people. But this isn't just the worst Sandman script I've read. This is the worst script I have ever read. So John Peters calls him up from Sony. <laughs> well, he says, he says to he says to Neil, he goes, he goes, so tell me which bit did you love the most? And he goes, I don't love anything the most. In fact, I don't love anything in the script it's one of the worst i've ever read he was like come on neil there's got to be something in there you love what about the mechanical spider he was like because of the mechanical spider and then neil gaming just fucking he just killed it there and then but yeah as joe alluded to what did john peters and avi arad go on to make next Wild Wild West. Wicked Wicked. You got to put a fucking leg mechanical spider in there. Oh my God. It, wild Wild West. Wicked Wicked. Wild, wild West. <laughs> but did you see on the, uh, in the flash when they did that terrible going they put through the history? They put the mechanical spider against With Nicolas Nick Cage. Cage yeah. 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 They could have left that out. I mean, Ooh. anyway. I digress. Just <laughs> truly terrible. I mean, I think he's right to be that enthusiastic. I think yeah. when I, yeah. some of the, <laughs> the different choices in, in the casting of the characters where they, like Lucifer's great. Um, what's the lady called? Let, let's, mm, let's yes. Um, she was from the, Game of Thrones, the, the, tall, the tall. The tall lady. She was oh. also in uh, Gwendolyn Christie. Yeah, she yeah. portrays Lucifer so well because there's menace, there's cunning, but it also performatively suggests that she was an angel, a fallen yeah. angel, but she still has an angelic quality to her, the way that she holds herself. Really good performance. And um, death, I'm going to be honest with you, I had the same reaction when I saw that Zazie Beats was going to be Domino. I was like, okay. You're putting white makeup on. You're putting. Yeah. You're paling up Tom Sturridge, right, to make him look like a wispy, deathly fellow. You can't do that now because we have a black lady. Because if you make a black lady white, there's going to be hell to pay, and rightly so. So I thought it was going to be visually jarring. However, what's her name? What's the lady's name? It's just a single name girl, Kirby. 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 Yep. I don't know but, why she doesn't have a last name. Is she like some kind of uh, artist, musician? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, she's an actress. 
I know that much, Joe. She perfectly found the tone of death. Perfectly. Mm -hmm. Casual, aloof, but still purposeful and knowledgeable. I fell in love with that depiction of death immediately. As soon as she was on the screen, everything else, all my concerns or anything else, all I saw was the character. Such a complicated but matter-of-fact character. And it feels like with everything she says, with everything she did, there was not like a duplicity, but there was a, a, a complication to everything. But it was so confidently and softly and matter-of-factly said. It's just a great performance. It embodied death, indeed. Yes. That episode was really well done, too, I thought. That so the first encounter between Morpheus and death, so well done. Oh, when she gets the baby, though, Joe. Mm. That was hard. Oh, the it baby. Is. It is hard. Yeah. Because it was kind of not a comedic, but when when the guy gets hit by the car and he's, he just, death's just there and goes, bloody hell, that was a close one. That guy nearly wiped me out. And she's like, uh... Just walk with me for a second. With me. <laughs> Just walk with me for a second. So good. So fucking yeah. good. Oh, and, and like uh, when the guy gets pulled out of the river as well. That was yes, that's that was something new really, that he added in. Yeah. That was that really was good. sweet. Because he was like, Just give me a minute. She's aware of how brutal the situation is and how overwhelming it would be. So she allows him a moment to say things to his wife, not realising that they're pulling him out of the lake and that she can't. It's like a sixth sense situation, isn't it? Where they're communicating, but obviously the wife or girlfriend can't actually hear him. How fucking these in my mind, dude. I wonder. I can't can't find the words to express how good that sequence of scenes were. And then when it just gets to the baby at the end and you're thinking... Oh no, you're not like rejoicing, but you know that there's better to come for the baby. Comforting. It's comforting because you know their souls, their spirit is in such good caring hands that it's... Exactly, exactly. That's what I couldn't find the words for, Joe. And it's like they say, like everyone thinks of death as as a bad thing. But like uh, Mm. Morpheus says in the book, she's got the greatest gift of us all. But yet Mm. people don't embrace it, right? And they capture that beautifully like the beauty in death they definitely capture that aspect of what comes after is is just so beautiful that why would you want to keep living and and, and that juxtaposes the whole 100 years thing right yeah, the, the yeah, two, yeah, yeah. They're, they're just such opposite ideas and this uh, adaptation was so good my favorite episode was whichever one i was watching <laughs> except for one except for one episode three hashtag uh, hashtag what happened with that one hashtag not my constantine oh <laughs> fuck off yeah, hashtag I don't want, my... yeah. no i've got yeah. it i've got to get this anyway. off my chest i've got i've got to get it off my chest though <laughs> fuck that shit fuck that shit like fuck, fuck, fuck that shit and it's fucking ass all i'm saying is i'm not in a caring like consensual way like aggressively by a fucking farmyard animal so jenna coleman she has a history in british soaps right she's like so here's the thing i i she's she's not constantine like there's nothing it's like domino in deadpool 2 there's a great character in this but that's not domino i mean that's her name but it's not domino there is nothing that reflects the character is on domino that zazie beats plays but that's fair enough i got over it I can't, I can't with this because 
It's such a specific fucking role. Now, who would be who did I say would be good at it? The the British punk from Deadly Class. Yeah, and I Perfect. said Tilda Swinton, and um, which I, I disagreed. Which which and I what it was I I said you don't need a cock to be to Cockney. pull off Cockney. I yeah, disagree. I think you I say uh, the perfect one would be Jason Statham in Snatch. Confident, cocksure, unreliable, but obviously the Jason Statham of today is nobody's going to buy into that. But say if he was to to have played it after Snatch, I I just uh, and the thing is she, she didn't feel confident in portraying that kind of crafty Cockney kind of unreliable drunkard she lent into she lent into it and then she retreated from it and sometimes she sounded a bit that way and then like do do a better job with the fucking costume as well she just looked like some sort of like 60s 60s enamored sort of scene stir let's for argument's sake say this is a hundred percent this drags it down at least 2%. Whatever your number is, this takes it down 2%. And it was just that one episode, Joe. And I'll tell you what, that was not my favourite episode when I was watching it. It was my least favourite episode, Joe. And it continued to be so. And I've watched a Which lot of episodes in my time. <laughs> I've watched many episodes of many things that I'm telling you, this is one of my least favourites. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I wasn't a fan of the casting for that. Probably one of the few castings that I wasn't a fan of. And I had my reservations in the beginning when Tom uh, Sturridge appears as Salmon. I was like, ooh, he looks kind of... I thought he looked a little too young. Like mm. like a little too young to play the character. But then when he speaks, he speaks so yeah. eloquently and with years of wisdom in his voice. Like, And then I was sold. As soon as he opened his mouth and delivered a line, I was like, ah, yes. This mm. is Morpheus. Cain and Abel are brilliantly cast, absolutely brilliantly cast. Mm-hmm. The the, frac- the fractious inevitability of their relationship, it's pulled straight from the, the comic pages. And going back to when you have all the the different gods in the dreaming, and Cain and Abel, I couldn't believe what Cain did. He saw his brother in half, and Abel's like, you're going to put me back together. He doesn't put him back together. He puts him through a mincer and makes sausages out of him. And at that <laughs> point, I'm like, how does this work? Because he because he buries him and he crawls out of the ground, doesn't he, each time? He can't yeah. do that as a sausage, Tim, surely. <laughs> Truly. And uh, the Corinthians. Do you reckon they'd show that? Would they show that on the, on the television series? Making sausages out of his brother? No. For entertainment, nonetheless. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah this isn't the boys. This is Sandman. Um, <laughs> I, I know. I'm like, that's why I'm saying this is Sandman, what I just talked about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the Corinthian, I thought, was well cast too. Boy, the oh, old really so. Really so, so. So good. And hats off to David Phyllis for John D. Oh my god. Oh my god. So good. So good, right? The casting's so good. There's not very many missteps. You know what the TV series did well for me? In the comics, I saw almost every reintroduction of a character as a new character. Because it's an expansive cast, I kind of mentally, mistakenly, 
was reading each arc is a completely new sort of subcast. What the TV program did allowed me to piece together individual story arcs in the comics that I didn't realize were connected because I had the visualization of the actual characters. Yeah. Especially and, uh, when it gets to 24 7, which is about the sixth or seventh episode. I'm like, oh, that was, and oh, yeah, okay, I get it. I yeah, get it. Yeah. Yeah. The voice work in the audiobooks is one of my favorite for Desire and in the show, too. Fantastic. I love like the attitude, the get up. I mean, they nailed it, right? Desire is so good. Yeah. Speaking of the Joker, Gaming actually wrote a three issue run involving the Joker because. They said you're allowed to tie it in. In fact, we'd like you to tie it into more DC stuff. And he went, oh, yeah, I'm happy to do that. I'd love to play in that sandbox. And he wrote a three-issue run, and he said, here you go. And they went, oh, no, sorry, we just killed him. And they were like, well, I mean, can, can I? it's his dream, so it could be any time. They went, yeah, yeah, we don't want to, yeah, we don't want to confuse people, so, yeah, you can't, you can't do that. So he went, fuck that, I'm never doing it again. <laughs> yeah. And... I mean, readers of Sandman will understand the whole concept of it's a dream. It won't be confusing. Like, he's not yeah. alive. He's just a manifestation of the dream. And it's it's so well explained when he goes and gets the bottle of wine for his buddy that he sees every hundred oh, years. He's like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I thought this wine didn't exist. He's like, probably not in the real world. But in the dream, <laughs> yeah. And, and then he can make it manifest it into, yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, I know it's so, Game of Sets, when the joke is that he went, yeah, but he's not though, is he? And they're like, yeah, but he is now. He went, yeah, but he's not dead, is he? And they're like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, my favorite episode of the series was you didn't get to it yet, but there's like a bonus episodes of like a oh, few of the one shots yeah, in the yeah, series yeah. and the cat episode with the cat story. Yeah. That is so well done in the series. It's it's is probably it my favorite. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. And it's so well done. And I love the fact that they, like a dream, right? A dream can take mm. on so many different tones and, you know, like, so it's it's awesome that they did like an episode where it's animated, right? It changes like, you know, it, the fantastical, it, it adds like that element to it, right? They fired the first producer because they wanted to do all of the dreaming sequences as in the yeah. place. Animated? It, yeah, animated. So they went... Yeah. Uh, no, that's not going to work, and we don't need you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to talk about, I don't know how you say his name, he plays John D. David Thewels. Yes, Thewels, yes. Is there, he's just, he has that, it's like when, who was the guy that played Red Skull in Agent Smith? For a while, he was just the archetypal, you need an archetypal you know, bad guy. Even. Hugo Weaving, Exactamundo, dude. David Thewels is now that guy. If you want mm. an awkward-looking, menacing antagonist, he's the guy. Oh, he's he's so good. Uh, Big Lebowski, he plays the uh, artsy Warholian gay guy who's fantastic, that just really? laughs at the scenes with uh, Julianne Moore. Uh, he's in the Fourth season of Fargo with Ewan McGregor plays a he fantastic really guy. Really good. Picks at his gums and his teeth, and it's like, ah, yeah, so yeah. fucking, oh, he's so good. He's so good. He's fantastic. He's really, really well. great character actor. Yeah, very. I'm guessing we'd all recommend the TV show. Definitely. Oh, I'm I'm intrigued. Definitely worth your uh, time. <laughs> I think it's great for someone that's a fan of the comics in context. 
It's also a really good way to just get into the Sandman if you've not read them. Mm, yeah. Such a rich world. And I mean, if you don't read it, watch the show. And if you don't exactly. like reading, if you're into audiobooks, go get the audiobooks because the audiobooks are fucking fantastic as well. So there's so many ways you can uh, get into Sandman. You don't have to go pick up the comics, which you should because it's the original form it was presented in. But hey, if you're into TV and stuff, go watch the series. If you're into audiobooks, then go get the audiobooks. They're all fantastic. Great advice if I ever heard it. Uh, would you like to say farewell to the people, Joe? So thanks again, and a great episode. It was nice talking to Tim and you, Matt, and I uh, can't wait to do it again. As always, when Joe comes on, we have such a great time. These are such fun ones. I'm uh, yeah. very thrilled to talk to you guys. I'm very excited for a good 2024. We yeah. wrapped up 2023. I thought, great. So let's let's keep it going. Yeah, yeah, I think so as well. Uh, yeah, Joe, I'm going to be on your show in a week's time on YouTube. Do you want to give a brief plug? Yeah, we're going to be covering uh, on the Sunday Spank is a little little segment we do on uh, on uh, how do we get here with uh, Matt, where we pick a classic. And uh, the modern classic of East of West is what we're going to be covering next of... Uh, that's a Hickman book with uh, Brigada on art, I believe. That's how you pronounce his last name. Uh, so we'll be covering the first deluxe hardcover edition on, I believe it's the 21st, if I'm not mistaken, of this month. Oh, God. When you said deluxe hardcover, I just remembered I ordered loads of stuff last night. And I forgot <laughs> about it till now. Okay, I was playing pool at the pub, and when you said deluxe hardcover, I was like, oh, shit. I just double dipped on mo Monstrous. And then because I found ah. some somewhere that was doing it so cheap, I also bought the omnibus for Superior Spider-Man. And I also bought the omnibus for, I can't even remember what the fourth one was. Oh, no. <laughs> I'll just have to, I'll send them back. I'll keep Monstrous, or, I'll send the other or, two back. Or gift it to someone if it's the first volume. I ain't fucking swimming in money, mate. I ain't worked for two weeks. I'm self-employed. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck me. Gift it to someone. Yeah, if they want to come, oh, even in that situation, they... They can come and pick it up. Brian, if you're listening, mate, drive up from Brighton, you can have them. I ain't fucking... I, like, I'm going to pay to pay sec a second time for my mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you as a person that's repeated a lot of mistakes, the second time does not make it any easier to take. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up now. I am part of your regular posting. Oh, no, we won't wrap it up there. Pause. <laughs> We continue next week with Caroline, and we're going to be reading the novel, we're going to be reading the comics, we're going to be watching the film, and we're going to be doing a compare and contrast and talking about if we like it or otherwise. After that, uh, I can't remember the order off the top of my head, we have Gaiman 16024 Marvel, we have Miracle Man, Neil Gaiman run on that, we're also going to go through the original Alan Moore to see how well it does in comparison and what's the final one tim what's the final mm. one? Oh, how to speak Dark to parties and yeah. the and what's the vampire one i don't know vampires suck blood i don't know what it's called the, the seven <laughs> brides things like seven brides and seven seven it's got a really really long title that goes all the way down to the bottom 
Oh yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I know. What you, I don't know. But yeah, you got it me for Christmas, and that's how flippant. I don't remember you are. the t- full title. What's the? F- I don't remember the full title. Just <laughs> give me a look. I'm getting Hillary from every direction here, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Post production, Matt's going to make an appearance this episode. Let's no, see. Let's see. Not, let's I'm see. not fucking subjecting that gentleman to you two. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, I am part of the regular co hosting team. Matt, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter as the end underscore. Pardon, you can find us on all your favorite listening locations as The End from Spank Media. And on YouTube, we are The End One Shots. Not only leaves me one more thing to say. We have been, and this is The End. Nice. I'm a bit sweaty. A bit sweaty. Clammy, I think the word would be.